Amen. Good morning. Hope y'all are doing well. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a joy to be with you uh, back. Uh, last week I was uh, got to be out of town, got a little bit of time off, so thank y'all for your generosity on that. And my beautiful wife and I got to celebrate seven years of marriage. Oh, that was very cool. Yeah, just going to throw that out there. Uh, nevertheless, if you've got a Bible with you, uh, go ahead and turn to Philemon. Philemon is this short book in the Bible. It's only about 25 uh, verses. It's in between Titus and Hebrews. So if you've gotten to Hebrews, you've gone a little bit too far. But uh, as you're flipping through the pages, I've got a couple of things for you. Number one, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we have Bibles for you, both in the rows before you and uh, at the Connect desk. And take one with you. That's our gift to you. Um, and if you have one and you know someone who would benefit from having a Bible, then totally take one or more. Uh, in addition to that, uh, we'd love to hang out with you. And so fill out one of the Connect cards that I think are also at the Connect desk so that uh, we can hang out with you. We could take you out for lunch, coffee, or other things. And uh, we'd hang out. Uh, but I think that's it as far as updates. I'd love to just dive in our time with a brief overview and, and slight review from, from last week. Nathaniel opened up this series and Philemon did a really great job. And uh, what you're going to notice is that this series is very short. Next week we uh, land the plane, so to speak, in Philemon. And uh, though it's only 25 verses, this book has such a rich depth of grace. And one of the central themes in this book is the work of reconciliation. And that's something that Nathaniel preached on last week, that, that reconciliation is the restoration of relationships uh, as a result of, of conflict. And that's something that you and I need to uh, be aware of, that uh, excuse me, reconciliation exists because conflict exists. As much as that makes us uncomfortable, as much as we don't necessarily want to talk about that, that's, at the end of the day, the truth. If you think about your relationship, Christian, if you think about your relationship with God, it is a means of reconciliation. That at one point, we were in conflict with God, in rebellion to Him, at war with Him, orphans, estranged, alienated. This is the language that the Apostle Paul uses, for instance, in Colossians, which is uh, one of the series that we just finished. And so at one point we were alienated, estranged, at war, in rebellion, orphaned to God. And through Christ's finished work on the cross, we have been reconciled. That is, our relationship has been restored with God the Father. And this is why Paul writes this personal letter to this man uh, named Philemon. Oftentimes in the New Testament, we see Paul writing to churches. And on a few occasions like this, we see Paul write a personal letter. And he writes to Philemon to encourage him to be reconciled to his bondservant Onesimus. In doing so, this reconciliation or this appeal to, uh, to be reconciled answers the question, as to what we believe about the grace of God. And that's our main question for today. Not necessarily our main idea, but it is our main question for today. So Christian, I want you to think about this for just a couple of seconds with me. Don't worry, we have a lot to walk through today, so you can spare 5-10 seconds. I want you to think about this. How well do you know the greatest gift of God? How well do you know grace? I'm going to pull a Mr. Rogers. I'm going to set my watch for 10 seconds. 
because I want you to think about it. How well do you know grace? You see, for many, grace is simply a doctrine that is preached and one that is to be believed. But in the letter to Philemon, grace is more than a doctrine that is to believe. It is the blueprint of life in community with one another. We often and regularly talk about God's grace for us, but do you actually consider what that means? Not simply as a doctrine, but as a practice. What does it mean to be so captivated by God's grace? What does it mean to be ultimately surprised by God's grace that it impacts your life on the daily? In the second century, the early church was growing exponentially, and many historical theologians suggest that the reason for this rapid growth and the expansion of the gospel was because the early Christians lived out grace toward one another and their neighbor throughout the contours of ordinary, everyday life. And it simply could not be ignored. Seeing Christians love one another, seeing Christians serve their community could not be ignored. And that's what was so captivating. That's what made not just the church, but the grace of God so captivating and so surprising by the surrounding community. And so as we circle back to the ministry of reconciliation, we must understand that this is a ministry that each one of us is called to. While I won't read it, you can cross-reference 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20. And there, Paul calls each one of us to the ministry of reconciliation. You and I have been called and commanded to this ministry. We talked a little bit about this on Thursday night's class, and what I love about 2 Corinthians is that as Paul tells us that we have been called to this ministry of reconciliation because we have first been reconciled with God, he doesn't give us an option. Right? It's not like serving on Sunday where you go to the Connect card and it's going to ask you, where would you like to serve? Would you like to be a greeter? Would you like to do kids ministry? Would you like to be in the band? Would you like to do something else during the week, like in a community group or so on and so forth? That's not what Paul says to the church in Corinthians. What Paul tells the church in Corinthians is because of what God has done for you, this is your ministry. So those of you have been, who have been curious about ministry, or if you say ministry really isn't my thing, that's untrue because you and I are called to the ministry of reconciliation. And we don't get an option. That's what's so beautiful about it. Nevertheless, it's a ministry that each one of us has been called to because it was first demonstrated for us in Christ. You see, the Lord Jesus demonstrated reconciliation for us on the cross as the beauty of his grace met with the wrath of God on behalf of sinners. And as a result, the finished work of Jesus has now reconciled sinners to the Father. Church, the reason reconciliation is so captivating is because it is an act of grace. 
It is an act of grace that apart from Christ, you and I cannot fully comprehend. And when examined, you and I are surprised by, by grace through Christ. And as we examine God's word this morning, my hope, my prayer, is that we would be a people that not only pursues biblical reconciliation, but that we would be a people who is captivated by his grace, making it our joy to actually live it out. So as we examine Philemon, let me pray, and then we'll begin in verse 8. We're going to go 8 through 16 this morning. God, as we come before you, and uh, as we come before you ready to examine your word, to continue worshiping you through the preached word, Lord, my prayer is that we would be captivated and surprised by your grace for us. My prayer is that we would be enamored by and with Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you, uh, through your word, challenge and convict and comfort our hearts this morning so that as we walk through this section of Scripture on the other side, we would be more like Jesus. Pray that Jesus himself would be exalted. We pray that this time would bring you glory and that we would be sanctified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As mentioned, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 16. And we're going to look at what is involved in reconciliation. And I've laid it out in three sections. I think you're going to see these up on the screen. And the three sections of our time are going to be the gospel of grace, transformative grace, and then restorative grace. A lot of grace today. right? The gospel of grace, transformative grace grace, and finally, restorative grace. And as we walk through each one of these sections, you're going to see that they overlap a little bit, but they also build upon one another. And so let's begin with verse 8. Paul opens by saying, accordingly, right? This is a word of transition similar to the word therefore, which Paul is very fond of. It's indicating not just a transition, but concerning what has already been said. It could be said this way. Paul, instead of using the word accordingly, Paul could be saying, since you have godly character, because of what God has done for you, in light of the work of Jesus in your life, I'm going to appeal to you about something. Okay? And so what's important here, or what's so, uh, I think, important to note, even from last week, is Paul appeals first to Philemon's character. And I want you to know that, that character matters. This past Friday at our, at our group, our MC, we were talking about defining godly character. We looked at Dallas Willard's definition where he says, character is who a person is and what they can be counted on to do. But then one of our resident theologians, Schmevs, those of you who know him, Schmevs goes on to say, godly character is a reflection of the time spent with God. We take on the traits of who is raising us. And if we're abiding in God, then our lives will yield that fruit. Character matters. And so the word accordingly isn't simply transition. 
verses 4 through 7, Paul spent a great deal of time encouraging Philemon about his character because of the work of God for him. And that matters because of what he's about to appeal to him on. In that section, Paul shares evidence of grace in Philemon's life so that he would appeal to his character because that's going to be Paul's motivation. It's going to get kind of awkward. It's going to get kind of weird in a minute. But Paul's motivation is God's work in Philemon. That's why he appeals to his character in the opening verses. So, in light of his character, Paul continues. Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. There's a lot, and it's really important that we look at each, uh, each part of this. Right? Not only do we see Paul appealing to Philemon's character, but we see Paul approach Philemon in humility. I mean, look at that first part. I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Paul is saying, I could just tell you what to do because of my authority as an apostle. I'm actually not afraid of confrontation. And in this moment, I could pull the apostle card. Right? Now, mind you, I want you to picture this briefly, right? I want you to picture Philemon like he's reading this letter. At the minimum, members of his family are with him, and he's reading this out loud. And this could be before the church at Colossae. And so he's reading this, and he's like, all right, what is it that you're going to ask me to do? And so Paul doesn't pull the apostle card on Philemon. Paul doesn't tell him, or better yet, Paul doesn't hit him over the head with the Bible and just simply using his authority. Instead, rather than pulling the apostle card, rather than pulling out his resume, what Paul does is that he appeals to Philemon as a brother and a friend. And there's that little phrase here in in verse 8 where he says, I am bold enough, and here's the phrase, in Christ. That was a little phrase that we discussed at length in Colossians. That they are united to one another because of what God and Christ has done for them. So he, he like the whole uh, apostleship is unnecessary. He's not pulling the pastor card. He's not pulling the apostle card. He's pulling, hey, I'm your friend and you're my brother. I got to appeal to you about something. And he even says it this way in verse nine, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. This appeal is, is twofold. Because, God, uh, because Paul has highlighted Philemon's character, and now he's appealing to him in love, essentially what Paul is saying is, because I know that you love God, I'm appealing to you so that this love would be demonstrated in whatever I'm about to ask you. Think about Dallas Willard's definition, who a person is and what he can be counted on to do. Paul says, I don't need to pull the apostle card. Instead, I'm appealing to you, not only as a brother, not only as a friend, but because I know you love God 
And I know you're going to want to demonstrate the love of God in whatever it is I ask you. And what's so, I think, important here is Onesimus still hasn't been named. Paul hasn't told him why he's writing to him. Paul hasn't given him any of that detail yet. And so you can kind of mm, imagine what's going on in Philemon's mind, what's going on in his heart. Paul has encouraged his heart. Now he's encouraging and assuring his mind. Like, okay, you're going to ask me to do something. This is, this is pretty serious. Verse 9 ends by Paul telling Philemon that, that he's an old man and a prisoner for Christ. And there's a lot of back and forth as to why Paul would have mentioned this to, to Philemon. However, many believe, and I would agree, that, that Paul mentions that he is an old man and that he is a prisoner for the Lord Jesus to remind Philemon of, of his ministry. In other words, Paul is about to expand upon uh, what reconciliation is. He's, he's going to ask him to be reconciled to Onesimus in just a moment. But Paul mentions that he's an old man and that he's a prisoner for the Lord Jesus as a way of communicating to Philemon, I've lived this out in my ministry. I've, I've not only preached reconciliation, I've also lived it out. I've seen it happen. And though Philemon doesn't know that Paul's going to talk about reconciliation yet, Paul is prepping him. What I'm about to ask you for, I've seen it. I've experienced it. I've preached it. You can think about, for instance, his relationship with Mark, one of the gospel writers. In Acts, him and Paul have sharp disagreement, and Paul calls him a deserter. And Barnabas, who's his cousin, says, Mark, come with me. Paul's like, forget this. We'll go preach the gospel elsewhere. And he goes. And then we see in Colossians that Paul is reconciled to Mark. We see in 2 Timothy that Paul tells Timothy, hey, send Mark to me because he is useful to me. In this little exchange, Paul is telling Philemon, what I'm about to ask you, I want you to know I have lived it I have experienced this. I'm a prisoner because I preach this. I mean, what is the gospel but reconciliation? And so Paul is just prepping, assuring Philemon's heart and his mind. And so to summarize this section, verses 8 and 9, you and I need to know that to move forward in the ministry of reconciliation— it must involve the gospel of grace. That's Paul's entire argument. That's the case that he's building in these two verses and in the verses that we looked at last week. Paul identifies evidences of grace in the life of Philemon. Well, that's the grace of God at work in Philemon. Paul appeals to Philemon as a friend and as a brother, and it demonstrates Paul's humility. This is the grace of God at work through Paul. The ministry of reconciliation must involve the gospel of grace because only then can you clearly identify the work of God's grace in the other individual and yourself. What I'm hoping is that the Lord places someone on your mind and on your heart this morning. Maybe because you got beef, maybe there's stuff you need to work out, 
Maybe you have not been reconciled to that individual. And in so doing, could you answer the question, uh, can you see godly character in them? Are you sober-minded enough to identify godly character in them? Are you sober-minded enough to evaluate the condition of your own heart, Christian? Are you sober-minded enough to preach this gospel of grace to yourself and eventually to that other person? That's what we're seeing here. He's appealing to his character. He is assuring him of his heart. He's preaching some gospel to him. Can you do that with whomever it is? Are you sober-minded enough to identify their character, to evaluate your heart, and to preach this gospel of grace? Reconciliation involves the grace of the gospel. Moving on to verse 10. All right. Uh, in this section, this is where we see reconciliation beginning to take shape. Because as I mentioned earlier, up until now, Paul hasn't mentioned Onesimus, right? He hasn't mentioned him to Philemon. So you can imagine, I want to keep on like pressing that illustration. You can imagine when Philemon is like reading, it's kind of like in the in, in, in cartoons where he begins to get wide-eyed because there's some intensity about to be brought to light here. <clears throat> and so you can imagine what's going on in his head and his heart. So beginning in verse 10, Paul says, says, I appeal to you. So he says it one more time, right? That's Paul's heart. He's approaching him as a brother and as a friend, right? He says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. This is the first time he's mentioned him. Whose father I became in my imprisonment. And we, we see Paul not only call Onesimus, hey, this is why I'm writing to you, or this is who I'm writing to you about, but we also see Paul's heart for the individual. We see the relationship that Paul and Onesimus have. Paul calls him my child in verse 10. In verse 12, he says to Philemon, I am sending him back with my very heart. The word heart in verse 12 is translated to bowels. <laughs> in other words, everything inside of Paul, it's taking everything inside of him to send Onesimus back. He loves him that much. And it's not out of character for Paul to become uh, so invested in the life of these younger disciples. In 2 Timothy, he calls Timothy my spiritual child, remembering his tears. To the Thessalonians, he says that he was like a nursing mother watching them mature in their faith. And he goes on to say that we were not only excited to share the gospel of God with you, but our very lives. We see the relationship that he has with Titus bringing him alongside on mission as he plants churches. Paul was the Titus II man that he writes to Titus about, where he invests in these younger disciples. 
And this kind of life in community, Paul lived out. And he lived it out, not just because he was convinced that this is what we should do, but because Paul was transformed by God's grace. And as people came to know the Lord Jesus, he invested time and energy and effort into them so that they would grow in the faith, so that they would also then disciple others, so that the gospel would be displayed wherever it was that they were. Whether they were being sent back like Onesimus whether it was to receive Onesimus, like what Philemon's about to be asked to do, whether it was the city that they were in or the prison cell that they were housed in. He wanted to see the gospel displayed in everyday life. That's why he invested time and energy into these people. And that's a, that's a really, really good indication of someone who's not just convinced, but someone who has been transformed by the gospel. Who are you investing in? When we look at, 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 at Titus, we see Paul say, hey, older men, invest in the younger men so that they would grow up in their faith. Older women, invest in the younger women so that they would know how to walk in grace. Do you live that out? Not for the purpose of morality, but for the purpose of more disciples being made more disciples being sent out. Paul lived this out. He's not just using terms of endearment to Onesimus so that Philemon takes it easy on him. Paul is telling him, he is like my son. Paul is telling him, I am sending you back my very heart. Meaning, this is difficult for Paul. And so he continues in this section. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to me, to you and to me. I am sending him back, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord." In a nutshell, here's what Paul is telling Philemon. Paul is telling him Onesimus could have stayed with him. Paul could have kept him with him because he is saying he actually could have helped me in ministry. I'm an older man now. I need the help. Uh, Onesimus is here. I would have loved to have him here with me. But Paul doesn't do that. Because Paul doesn't want to keep anything from Philemon. He wants to honor Philemon. And so Paul, as he writes to Philemon, he presents him with a circumstance. He tells him that Onesimus is now a Christian. And he wants to honor Philemon by sending him back. Or excuse me, by sending Onesimus back. And at the same time, Paul's heart is wrecked because he's losing a spiritual child. So Paul confident in Philemon, check it, leaves the matter up to him. This is huge because although Paul honors Philemon, he passively charges him to think and act biblically. Philemon, upon receiving Onesimus, legally could have killed him. Like Paul doesn't give him an answer. Paul leaves it to Philemon because he first appealed to his character. 
because he's appealing to him for love's sake. Hey, knowing that you love God, I know that you're going to want to see that demonstrated in what I'm about to ask you. And he leaves it up to Philemon. How scary is that for Onesimus? And at the same time, how, I suppose, uh, I don't know if this is a word, transformational is that for Onesimus? Like, he's willing to go back. Fully knowing what he can experience. And so Paul leaves the matter to him. And Paul leaves the matter to, to Philemon so that Philemon would think and act biblically. And that's the same thing that Paul wants the Colossians to do as we examined Colossians 1, I think it was like 9 through 14. Paul's desire is for them to act and think biblically. This is a continuation of this. Because, check it, if Onesimus, or excuse me, if Philemon responds and acts and thinks biblically, we're going to see this ginormous testimony of the grace of God. You see, Onesimus returning to Philemon is going to be a testimony of God's transforming grace. That whatever reason he fled for, at some point he becomes a Christian, is discipled by Paul, and is now coming back loving the Lord Jesus, knowing that Philemon is his brother. It's a testimony of God's transforming grace. Additionally, if Philemon or when Philemon receives him, it's going to be a testimony of the gospel. It's going to be a testimony of the gospel because as we looked at last week, at the very least, his family is there with him as he's reading this letter. There's an eager church, the Colossian church, wanting to grow in their faith. And so Paul leaves the matter to him and says, hey, respond biblically. And so now the church is looking like, what are you going to do? Because however, or hopefully the way Philemon answers, it answers the question of whether or not this grace that we keep talking about is real. Remember, the Colossians were a young church between five and seven uh, years old. A lot of young Christians, right? They're, they're learning at the same time that they're being persuaded by other teachings. And then Paul writes this to Philemon, who's a member in the church. Uh, the church is meeting in his house and so as Paul leaves it to him, Paul leaves it, hey, I want you to respond biblically to Onesimus. And the church is like, is the grace that he just finished preaching to us real? Or is it just something that we give lip service to? Reconciliation answers the question of whether or not grace is real. And the letter to Philemon provides us with a resounding yes. It is real. It's about to be demonstrated. It's about to be demonstrated, and it has been demonstrated. We're looking at characters like Philemon, who God's at work in his character. Paul, who's a product of reconciliation himself. Onesimus, a brand new Christian. The church, they are eager to grow, and so they're watching. We want to see how this grace is actually going to be lived out. Like, cool, we read it in Colossians 1 through 4, but what does it actually look like? 
And Philemon answers it. Reconciliation involves transformative grace. And finally, at the closing of this section, Paul's appeal becomes specific. Right? As of right now, he's just told him, Onesimus is with me. Uh, I'm going to send him back to you. He's very dear to me. Technically, Paul still hasn't told him what, like why he's writing to him. Right? So let's, let's go. This is verse 15. <coughs> Paul says, For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you may have him back forever. Right? At this moment, Paul appeals to Philemon by hinting at the providence of God. See, at the end of the day, that's all we have left in this scenario. In this circumstance between Philemon, Paul, and Onesimus, that's all we have left. God's redemptive providence. Who is to say that the person or the scenario that you're thinking about isn't the result of God's providence and redemptive purpose? I mean, think about it. Philemon leaves, or excuse me, Onesimus leaves Philemon in Colossae, travels, just happens to travel several thousand miles to Rome, just happens to get arrested in Rome, just happens to be put in prison with Paul, just happens to be converted and is now discipled by Paul. Paul is hinting at God's providence to Philemon here. Paul is telling him, none of this is random. This was actually part of God's redeeming purposes. And everyone is always asking about God's will for their life. Well, here the opportunity presents itself in reconciliation. All right, Paul to the, uh, to the Thessalonians say, says, uh, hey, this is God's will for you. And everybody's like there with their journals and their moleskins in Thessalonica because they're just like, yeah, tell me God's will. And he says, your sanctification. So whoever the person is, whatever the scenario is, what's the purpose of that reconciliation process? Your sanctification. Notice how we haven't talked about the other person, just you. All right? Everyone's always looking for God's will. It's your sanctification. Right? Moving forward. Paul appeals to Philemon to receive Onesimus no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Paul desires for Philemon to see not only that not only the gospel, uh, has the gospel saved Onesimus, not only has, has the, the grace of God transformed him, but now he's asking Philemon to be restored to Onesimus as a brother in Christ because Onesimus is in Christ. He has now been adopted by the grace of God into the family of God that Philemon is a part of. And Paul wants him to receive him physically. You look at the end of verse 16. He says, uh, as a beloved brother, especially to me, how much more to you both in the flesh receive him physically and in the Lord be restored to him biblically because he and you are a new creation. You have both been reconciled. 
So receive him. And listen, forgiveness is hard. I'm not knocking that. Philemon knows that. Paul knows that Philemon knows that. But that's why Paul appeals to his character. That's why Paul assures him of God's grace for him in his life. That's why Paul builds a personal case of grace with Philemon. Reconciliation involves restoration. And so as we look at a little bit of practical application, I want you to consider these three principles when it comes to restoration. Because that's what we're looking at now, and that's what we're going to be looking at next week. So here are three principles under restoration. The first one is forgiveness. Now, I'm going to spend most of my time talking about forgiveness. Right? Because forgiveness entails a lot of different things. And because we're all at church service together, we have the time to think about it. Right? Forgiveness entails a lot of things. The first thing is that it entails God's forgiveness. Now, here's, let me just preface with this. I, I said it earlier, okay? Right now, we're going to be talking about our favorite subject, and that's ourselves, okay? So if you're just like, man, he's talking about me. It's your favorite topic, of course, right? So the idea here is that we're actually not even talking about the other party. We're just talking about you. And so some of you might not like that. We'll do business with the text, not with me, right? And so the first part of forgiveness or the, the first thing to look at when it comes to forgiveness is God's forgiveness. In other words, we don't, we're not going to forgive randomly. We forgive because we are the most forgiven people. That God has forgiven us in Christ as our substitute on the cross in our place for our sin. Christian, you have been completely forgiven. In, in Matthew 7, Jesus says, hey, you want to go talk to your brother who has a speck in his eye, but you want to ignore the log that's in yours. Let's address the log in yours first before we go to your brother. And so what Jesus says in light of forgiveness and reconciliation is that <clears throat> in light of forgiveness and reconciliation, is that this whole process is going to begin with you. This whole process, Jesus makes it personal. This whole process, Jesus makes it about your heart first so that you would preach the gospel. Whether or not you can is something else. Preaching the gospel to yourself, examining the condition of your heart. Because when it comes to forgiveness, man, it's really easy to say, yeah, someone else needs to forgive me. They have wronged me. And that may be true. But even in a response like that, it is very arrogant. And so we dismiss God's forgiveness for ourselves. That's where it actually begins. The writer of Proverbs in, in chapter 19 says this, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. How do you overlook an offense? You first look to God's forgiveness for you. That's where it starts. Additionally, writer and theologian N.T. Wright says this, First, it is utterly inappropriate 
for one who knows the joy and release of being forgiven to refuse to share that blessing with another. Second, it is highly presumptuous to refuse to forgive one whom Christ himself has already forgiven. So he's calling us arrogant and fools if we hold forgiveness from someone that Christ has already forgiven. In that scenario, if that's me, I'm trying to be God in that scenario. In the other scenario, I'm being arrogant, right? The first part of it says, it is utterly inappropriate for one who knows the joy uh, and release of being forgiven to refuse to share that. That forgiveness is me. It is private. And I don't have to extend that to anybody. It is absolutely arrogant and foolish to assume that. The word forgiven means to be released from. Next, when it comes to forgiveness, it means putting others ahead of yourself. Uh, Why? (laughs) Like, why is that hard? Because it means dying to yourself. It means putting your comfort to death. It means putting your pride to death. It means being stripped of your self-righteousness. It means that you no longer have excuses. It means taking responsibility. You could already start to see what makes reconciliation uncomfortable, not difficult. Uncomfortable. It means putting others ahead of yourself, dying to yourself. Forgiveness entails being kingdom-minded. Remember, who is with Philemon as he's reading this letter? At least his, or probably his wife and his son, and perhaps the church, because they're like, sweet, two letters from Paul? What did he say? And Philemon's like, let me tell you. And he's just read and he's like, oh no, this is about me. (laughs) forgiveness is kingdom-minded because when we forgive we actually get to demonstrate how this grace that we talked about actually works in real life we get to encourage the saints which is what paul told philemon hey i love that you are a man who encourages the saints you love them all because of that philemon Additionally, it's kingdom-minded because it leads us to worship properly. In 1 John 4, God through John says, you're actually, it's going to be difficult for you to worship God properly if you say you love God but hate your brother. It's kingdom-minded. Forgiveness is gracious. It's an act of grace. One of my favorite Puritan writers, his name is Thomas Watson. This is what he says uh, about forgiveness. And he's answering the question, why do we forgive others? He says, when we strive against all thoughts of revenge, if it be in our power to do our enemies mischief, we will not. We wish well to them, 
We grieve at their calamities. We pray for them. We seek reconciliation with them. We show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. This is the gospel of forgiving. Likewise, in Matthew 18, Peter and Jesus are having a a chit-chat. And Peter's like, hey, Jesus, how often should I forgive my brother who sins against me? Should I forgive him seven times? And Peter thought he was being both witty and gracious. He thought he was being, or excuse me, not gracious, generous. He thought he was being generous because according to the Jewish law, after forgiving someone five times, if uh, there wasn't reconciliation and if they kept doing their things, you can cut them off, right? And so Peter thought he was being generous. If I forgive him seven times, am I good? Thought he was being witty. And what's Jesus' response? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. What Jesus is getting at, it's a hyperbole. In other words, he's saying, you keep forgiving. Yeah, but when? When do I stop? You keep forgiving. Now, here's the thing. We're not talking about boundaries in this sermon. If you got questions on that, we could talk about that afterward. We're not there talking about you, right? So here we go, right? He's being witty and he thinks he's being generous. Well, I forgave him seven times and Jesus says, keep doing it. Forgiveness is an act of grace. Secondly, the, the, the second principle surrounding restoration is that it's rooted in providence and not coincidence. This letter, the circumstance that we see Paul and Philemon and Onesimus in, it's not random. This was ordained by God. It is not random that you're thinking of someone or a scenario. And finally, restoration has uh, eternity in mind. Why does it have eternity in mind? Onesimus is now a Christian. He tells him, don't receive him as a bondservant, but more than that, as a brother. This, the way you guys are going to engage one another, has eternal consequences. It has impacts for the kingdom. People will actually see if the grace we talk about is real. It has eternal consequences because there's a watching world. And they got questions, and we can answer that one question right now with grace. Reconciliation involves restoration. Now, I understand that reconciliation is difficult, and it's uncomfortable, and I know that it's making many of you uncomfortable. It's making me uncomfortable. But through the Holy Spirit... God is pressing us to think and act biblically. To not only believe grace, but to live it out as the blueprint for life in community together with one another as there is a watching world. When you and I move toward the ministry of reconciliation, we must remember that it was First, an act of grace initiated to us by God in Christ. And on the cross, what did Jesus do? He didn't sweep our sins under the rug. He didn't just ignore your sins. 
He didn't put them under the rug. He didn't put them in a can. He didn't just ignore them and turned his back. Rather than sweeping our sins, Jesus became our substitute for our sin so that we might be reconciled to God. When the grace of God met the wrath of God, sinners were reconciled. So as members of the same body, members of the same ministry, let us pursue diligently reconciliation. Christian, who do you need to be reconciled to or with? To whom are you withholding forgiveness from? Where is there complaint and gossip rather than confession and grace? See, the Holy Spirit dwells in you, equipping you to walk in this grace for the glory of God and your good. Therefore, repent of your sin. Turn to the Lord Jesus and walk out this grace that you and I say we love. And as far as engaging in that conversation, engaging in that confession of sin, listen to me, do not delay. Do not delay. You already got the scenario. You already got the person. You already got the conviction. What, what else? Don't delay. Non-Christian, if you don't know Jesus, then you are outside of reconciliation with God. For you are at war with him. You are in rebellion to him and your heart is spiritually dead. Yet, for love's sake, God entered into human history as the man Jesus Christ who lived in our place and died for our sin and offers you the grace of salvation that you cannot earn so that you would be reconciled to God. Confess your sin. Repent of your sin. Turn away from your sin and turn toward the Lord Jesus. Church, grace is the blueprint of how we are to live in community with one another. Let us walk in this grace. Let's pray. God, we confess to you knowing that we have sinned. We confess the sins that no one knows and the sins that everyone knows. God, we confess the sins that are a burden to us. And we confess the sins that do not bother us because we have grown used to them. We have not loved one another as Christ loved us. We have not forgiven one another as we have been forgiven. We have not given ourselves in love and service for the world as Christ gave himself for us. Father, forgive us. 
Send the Holy Spirit to us that he may give us power to live as by your mercy and grace you have called us to live. Through Jesus Christ, our good God and Savior. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable and pleasing to you. Amen.